that. That was, that was awesome. Um, hey, um, welcome to all of you who are here. I know there's lots of friends and family here, and we're so glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. Last week, Robert began our new series, Reconciled, um, and as we move closer to Christmas, we're seeing why reconciliation is at the heart of the, Christi- uh, the Christmas message. So we'll be in Ephesians 2 today. Um, it, it doesn't take a long look at our world to notice that things are broken. Things are not the way they should be. Almost nothing lasts. We're unfulfilled and unhappy, and we're at odds with family and friends and coworkers on an array of issues. We have things in the world like cancer and heart disease and COVID. We have broken families and divorce and children without fathers and children without mothers and children with no parents at all. We live in a world with homelessness and addiction and depression, abortion, foreclosures, loss of jobs and loss of livelihoods. We have war and hatred and racism and corrupt politicians and inept leaders and authoritarianism and tyranny and injustice. Bob Dylan may have said it best when he said that streets are filled with broken hearts. Everything is broken, broken hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows, broken pipes, uh, broken tools, people bending broken rules. Everything is broken. Well, I can feel the Christmas spirit, can you? (laughs) With all that's wrong, with all that's out of order, with all that causes discord, is it any wonder that we may have one of two reactions when we hear about reconciliation. We may marvel at it, or we might even scoff at it. Is, is, it, is it even possible that things can be made right? Is that, even, is that even something that can happen? Can we really have peace and harmony with each other? But you know, our problems go deeper than just our interpersonal and relational issues. The Roman Catholic Cardinal Henry Manning in the 19th century said that All human conflict is ultimately theological. I wonder what you think of that. I I think that's a pretty good summation of things. And if that's correct, I think then we have to go beyond asking if we can just have peace and harmony with each other. But now we have to ask the deeper question, can we have peace and harmony with God? And if so, how can we be made right with Him? And answering those questions is what Christmas is all about. Into our mess, into the fallen world, Jesus steps in. God incarnate comes into our division. He comes into our pain. He comes into our problems to reconcile His people not only to one another, but ultimately to Himself. And this is Christmas when the God of the universe becomes God with us, our Emmanuel. So let's look at the text this morning. I want to pick up, um, I want to pick up reading Ephesians 2. I want to pick up reading in verse 11. Uh, we're going to read through verse 22, but we're really only going to focus on verses 14 through 18. I just think it's important to kind of get this whole idea that Paul's laying out here in this, in this section of Scripture. So Ephesians 2, verse 11 and following, Paul writes, Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's Word. So, what does God offer the world at Christmas? This world that's marked by so much strife and division and brutality and pain and suffering, what is it that at Christmas God offers to us? He offers us reconciliation. In the coming of Jesus into our brokenness, God is telling us that He is making all things new. He is creating something altogether unique, something that only He can do. So this morning, I want to look at three things that Christmas proclaims to a broken world longing for reconciliation. The first is this, Christmas proclaims that Jesus has broken down hostility between former enemies and has made something entirely new. We'll read verses 14 through 16 one more time real quick. For He Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, there's a lot going on in those verses. And so let's step back from them just a bit and kind of unpack them a little bit this morning. And we we can ask several questions of the text. That's a good way to navigate your way through Scripture. Ask questions of it. Write them down. Ask the Lord to help. And the first question we can ask is about peace. We're going to put that one on hold. Peace is a recurring theme in these verses. It comes up a lot. And so we're going to talk about peace in just a minute. But first we can ask, what, what is this dividing wall of hostility? What is it? Who is it between? Next, what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus abolished the law of the commandments? Wasn't Jesus supposed to fulfill the law rather than to abolish it? And finally, what is this new thing that God is making? So, that's a lot, but we can, we can do it. First, what is the dividing wall of hostility? Well, there's a reason that I wanted to pick up reading in this passage in verse 11. So, Paul calls our attentions to the divisions between Jews and Gentiles before any of them were Christians. Now, um, Paul wrote the letter of Ephesus probably somewhere between 62 and 66 AD. We know from history the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and so the temple was still standing and functioning during the time that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And so many Jewish believers have probably been to the temple, they've probably been to Jerusalem, they know what it looks like, and at the 
temple at that time when Paul wrote this, there was quite literally a wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. If you remember from Sunday school or if you've looked in the back of your Bible at the maps and seen the diagram of the temple, uh, there was an outer court that was reserved for Gentiles. It was the court of the Gentiles. And regardless if you believed in the God of the Bible or not, if you worshiped Yahweh, if you were not an ethnic Jew, you were not physically allowed beyond a certain point. There was a wall that separated you from the rest of the temple. And archaeologists actually have uncovered um, an inscription that was on that wall that effectively warned Gentiles that said, if you move beyond this point, you are responsible for your own death. And we see how serious the Jews took this also in, in, in Acts chapter 21. Uh, they erroneously suspected Paul of bringing a man named Trophimus, who was a Gentile believer. They suspected him of bringing him beyond the court of the Gentiles into other parts of the temple, and they tried to stone him to death for it. This is when Paul gets lured out the window, down the basket in the middle of the night, and makes an escape. It's fascinating, but the Jews took this very seriously. There was quite literally a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And not only that, there were also, there were, not only were there physical barriers, but Jews and Gentiles, uh, there, were, there were ceremonial and cultural barriers as well. So we'll go on a real brief tour of kind of Old Testament theology. We won't belabor this, but God, when, remember back when God called Abraham, he told Abraham that he would use him to bless the nations. You remember that? And God told Abraham that his offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky and outnumber the sands on the shore. And Abraham and his offspring were the Jews and they would be set apart wholly to the Lord. They would be the chosen people to whom God would reveal himself and work in and through human history. Hundreds of years later comes Moses to whom God gave the law. And it was the ceremonial aspects of the law that would mark a visible and tangible separation between the Jews and the surrounding nations. They had dietary laws, and they had clothing laws, and purity laws, and Sabbath laws, and sacrificial laws that God required. And these laws served as another way to separate Jews and Gentiles. Through these laws, God preserved His chosen people, and He made them distinct from other peoples. It was as if before God brought His people into the promised land, He gave them the law in such a way as if you were to take a sponge and coat it with a protective coat of oil before dragging it through the gutter in order to keep it clean. God gave His people the law to protect them from the filth that they were about to encounter. The only way for an outsider then to become part of the community of God and to worship God was to obey the ceremonial parts of the law and live as a Jew, which included circumcision. And this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then one night in a little town called Bethlehem, in a forgotten part of Judea, a virgin teenage girl gave birth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God tore the heavens open with his angels to announce the birth of his son to a group of filthy and unesteemed shepherds, and everything changed. God had become man. And Jesus had been born fully God and fully man, ready, willing, and able to succeed where Adam failed in the garden in pleasing and obeying God. Jesus was ready and able and willing to do that. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, and he pleased his Father perfectly in all respects. He preached salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles and called them to repent for the kingdom of heaven was near. 
Jesus willingly then went to the cross to atone for the sins of those who confess him as Lord, securing the hope and the promise of eternal life for all those who believe. And as he died, the curtain that separated the most holy part of the temple, the holy of holies, from the next layer of the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, representing the wall of hostility between God and man being removed. And we now no longer have need for any other mediator between God and man other than Jesus himself. There's no more need for animal sacrifices and there's no more need for a priest because Jesus himself is our mediator before the Father. Jesus made it possible for those who had nothing in common but hatred for each other to now call one another brothers and sisters and friends. If you're a certain age, you remember, you have a living memory as I do, I was almost nine years old, of the Berlin Wall being torn down, 1989. Yeah, I was almost nine. You may have seen it in the history book, you may have seen it on YouTube, but you... You won't forget those pictures if you've seen them. People with their bare hands ripping this wall down and tearing apart stones and concrete and and, and metal and ripping it down. And now, as soon as that wall comes down, they are now reunited with their countrymen and they're reunited with their friends and they're reunited with their family. And there's this amazing moment of reconciliation where people are embracing and weeping with one another that we are reconciled. You'll never forget that if you saw it. And this is what Paul means when he talks about tearing down the wall of hostility and why we rejoice at the reconciliation Christmas brings. But what about Jesus abolishing the law of the, of the commandments? And what about the ordinances? Does, doesn't Jesus himself say in Matthew five seventeen that he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it? How, how then do we make sense of what Paul's saying and how does it relate to the idea of reconciliation? So, the law given to Moses had two aspects. There was a moral aspect and a ceremonial aspect. The moral aspect of the law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, God intended to give to all people. This is the way the world is intended to work. It is the basis for how human society functions. It shows us that the God of the Bible is personable, knowable, and moral. If you want to, probably the best treatment of the Ten Commandments is a I can't remember, it's a 10 or 12 part series, but Alistair Begg, Truth for Life, about 15 years ago, did an amazing series on that. I highly recommend it. You can find it online. Um, It's one of the best treatments of the Ten Commandments and why they're so important for us today. Cannot recommend that to you enough. But we are still under that. We are still under God's moral law. He has given us that as the way the world is intended to work. He is not a God of disorder, but a God of order. That law, that moral law is with us today. This is the law that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. God's moral law never dies. It never fades away. It doesn't call us to live as moralists, but it calls us to know and obey the one. Now, the ceremonial law was a bit different, no less authoritative, no less given by God, but it had a different purpose. It was given to a specific people for a specific purpose, for a specific period of time to achieve a specific end. The ceremonial requirements of the law were another tangible separation between Jews and Gentiles, and they were the the way for God's people to be distinguishable from others. It was this law that Paul tells us in, in Galatians that served as a placeholder for Jesus. This was the guardian that was put in place for a time until Jesus would come and break down this wall of hostility, the dividing wall of separation between enemies. 
That law, the ceremonial law, has been abolished in Jesus. That's why we as Christians no longer live under the dietary laws of the Old Testament. That's why we don't worry about what kind of material our clothes are made out of. That ceremonial law has been abolished in Christ. It was that law that separated Jews and Gentiles, and it's been torn down because of what Jesus has done. Cool, good story. I mean, that's, that's good information, and it's important to know that. But what about us? Why go over that? Why? What does this mean for us, and why talk about it as we look forward to Christmas, especially as it relates to reconciliation? Well, just like the Jews and the Gentiles were enemies of one another, and just like there was a wall of separation between them, we were enemies of God. There was a wall of sin that separated us from Him. And because we were enemies of God, we were also enemies of one another. Remember, all human conflict is ultimately theological. And Jesus came to reconcile all of that. The manger of Christmas led to the cross of Calvary. The cross of Calvary led to the empty tomb in the garden. And the empty tomb points to Jesus who by his resurrection has both reconciled and justified broken and hateful sinners to himself and to one another in him. This is why we celebrate reconciliation at Christmas and why Jesus tearing down this wall of hostility is such wonderful news. Jesus doesn't leave us the way he finds us. He changes everything. He makes us entirely new. We are one with him. We are one with him. We are one with each other in him if we are believers. And by assuming a human nature in the incarnation, he has formed in his own body a perfect unity with himself and with others. That is the new thing that he makes, a people that are his, that are reconciled to himself and to each other. And this new people is called the church. I remember back in 1997, um, going, I was 16, I'm, I'm dating myself a lot this, this morning, um, but going on a trip to Washington, D.C., and uh, the, the bunch of us were there, and, and one of the organizers of that trip was, was a man named Steve Cavanaugh. He was my uh, high school guidance counselor. He's still alive and kicking down in Orlando and a great dude. Uh, but he also, Steve also happened to be my Sunday school teacher. Um, so we were, we were very close. And, and I remember as we were walking down the street one day, uh, Steve stopped. And, and if you remember in 97, there was a lot of construction going on in the Capitol. Um, there were construction cranes everywhere, a lot of renovations. And remember as we were walking down the street, Steve stopped and he said, hey, you guys ever, you guys ever look at a crane? and think that it's a metaphor for the Christian life? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Like, you know, we're, we're 16 years old, so we, you know, we look at him you know, blank-faced. and like, what? And he says, he, he tells us, he said, look, um, Steve, Steve explained to us that the crane can only be effective if the vertical part is intact. And unless that piece is functioning properly and intact, the horizontal part can do no work around it. So unless our relationship with God is made right, we can't do any of, war, any of the work that God has given us to do around us until that vertical piece is in place. And so we, you know, being smart aleck 16-year-olds kind of named that craniology. And uh, I can still, it's been 25 years nearly, and every time I see a crane, I still think of that. So it made an impact. But you see, Jesus came to make us right with God. He, at the cross, reconciled his people to himself, putting them in a right relationship with God. And in doing so, he tore down all that separates his people from one another. 
No more ceremonial division. No more cultural division. No more racial division. We are reconciled to him and to each other. Our vertical relationship is intact, and so now can be our horizontal relationships. A pastor I greatly respect said this. He said that for those in Christ, the only identity that matters is their identity in him. There is no Jewish or Gentile Christianity, black or white Christianity, male or female Christianity, free or slave Christianity. There is only Christianity because our Lord only has one church. This is why Christmas proclaims that Jesus has broken down hostility between former enemies and has made something entirely new. He has built and is building his church, purchased by and brought together by his very own blood. Next, Christmas proclaims that Jesus came to make peace, verse 17. And and, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And the idea of peace is a major theme in this passage. We, peace is mentioned four times in these verses, so it's evident Paul is drawing our attention to it. Paul says in verse 14 that Jesus himself is our peace. In verse 15, Jesus has made peace between enemies. Now we see Jesus preaching peace. Peace is a major part of Christmas. A favorite verse that many of you read and that I read around Christmas time is Isaiah 9-6. For unto us a son is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We think of peace also when we think of the angels who announced Jesus' birth in Luke 2.14 when they sang out, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We love talking about peace at Christmas. The, the, the past couple of weeks, I've been privileged to lead one of our men's Bible studies that meets up here on Wednesday mornings, and we're going through the Advent guide that some of our staff wrote, and Chris Mixon wrote uh, this past week's uh, entry on peace, and so we, we studied that, and we talked about peace, we talked about the idea of peace, um, and we talked about how even though Christmas, the, a major theme of Christmas is peace, it seems to be a time of year where we find so little of it. There's so much to do, right? There's, there's family obligations and travel and trying to make sure everything is perfect, trying to meet everyone's expectations, trying to get the right gifts, trying to get enough gifts, and so on, and so on, and so on. And then there's work expectations. The end of the year doesn't, it, work doesn't stop just because it's Christmas, right? I mean, Christmas comes at the end of the year, which means there's Q4 reports and summaries and um, projects to wrap up and then projections for January and getting ready for the things and spreadsheets and, you know, projections and all of that kind of thing. And it just, it never stops. And it goes on and on and on. So what does peace mean? What is peace at Christmas? Well, at the time of Jesus' birth, one of the main expectations the people had for the Messiah was that he would be a political revolutionary. They wanted him to overthrow the oppressive powers of Rome and reinstate the power, influence, dominance, and peace of David and Solomon's kingdoms. Peace in the minds of many, not not all, but, but many who were looking for the Messiah, meant freedom from Roman rule. Jesus was not what they were looking for. The problems in the world did not stop at his arrival. He did not overthrow Rome. He did not restore Israel to its former glory. He did not take over by force. Instead, he preached peace 
And he called people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He called people to store up their treasures in heaven. He called them to love one another. Meanwhile, Rome continued its dominance over Israel. There were corrupt puppet kings like Herod. There were pagan governors like Pilate. There were dishonest tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. And there were brutal Roman soldiers like the ones that crucified Christ. So if the peace that Jesus doesn't if the peace that Jesus brings doesn't solve our immediate felt needs and our immediate problems, what kind of peace does he bring? What is the pre- the peace that he preached? And to answer that, let's look at the word preached. The word preached in the original Greek literally means to announce good news. And that's what preaching is. It's announcing, it's 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 heralding the good news of what God has done. If you hear more about what you have to do than more about what God has done, you have not heard preaching. It's the same word we get our words for gospel and evangelism for. So then, Jesus in preaching peace was preaching good news. That news was not that he came so that we could be free of our problems. The news that he preached was not good news because he was not telling us that we will no longer suffer or hurt or be despised. It's not that we won't face loss or disaster or live our best life now. It's not that we'll finally have our guys in office. It's not that we'll have political or economic or social dominance. No, this good news, this piece is the message of the gospel itself. That God, through Jesus, has made peace between himself and men and between Jew and Gentile. He has broken down the wall of hostility and reconciled us to himself. That is the message of the gospel, and the message of the gospel is the message of Christmas. The great reformer John Calvin says this. He says, observe here the message of peace by which God declares himself to be reconciled to us and makes known his fatherly love. So peace then is this. Peace is a settled composure in who God is. Let me say that one more time. Peace is a settled composure in who God is. It doesn't lead us to dread over our problems or even necessarily to escape our problems. But rather, peace leads us to desire and seek the very face of God. So this Christmas... When things may not slow down, they may not quiet down, they may not calm down, peace can still be found in seeking God in Christ, for he has reconciled us as believers to himself in Jesus. Now, we can't leave verse 17 without looking at who it was that Jesus preached this peace to. Look at it again. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Hmm. You know, that's fascinating to me. You remember, Paul has set this passage up talking about Jews and Gentiles. He references several times from verse 11 on that the Gentiles are the ones that were far off. They were separated. They were without hope. They were strangers to God's covenants. And then conversely, the Jews are the ones who were God's chosen people. They had the promises. They had the covenants. They had the law. They had the favor. They had the history. But Jesus preached the good news of peace to both. Why? Because both need the gospel. The reason and logic of the Gentiles couldn't save them. The, the ethnicity and the ceremonies of the Jews couldn't save them. They were near, quote unquote near, only in the fact that they were in the genetic line of Abraham who came, uh, to whom came the promises. But in their hearts, they were far from God. 
both Jew and Gentile, were brought near to God, brought into his family, brought to salvation through the blood of Christ. And that's verse 13. So this year, are you looking for peace? It's found nowhere other than in King Jesus. Christmas is shouting the message that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. Christmas is shouting the message that Jesus himself is our peace. Christmas is shouting that this hope, this peace, this settled resolve in the truth and the promises of God can be ours in Christ. Christmas shouts that our identity, our morality, our outward practices, our actions, our reason, our intellect cannot save us. We must, whether near or far, come to Jesus, for only He is our reconciliation. Only He is our hope. Only He is our peace. That is the good news of great joy that Jesus came to preach, and that is the message of reconciliation at Christmas. And then finally... Christmas proclaims that Jesus gives us access to the Father. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the word access in this verse was used in ancient Greek to describe being granted an audience with a monarch to be brought into the presence of a king. That's what Jesus has given us. He has in himself, by his life and his death and his resurrection, brought us to the Father. This is our ultimate reconciliation, that we can come to the Father unencumbered by our sin because Jesus has taken it from us. He has broken down the wall of hostility that existed between us and God. He has paid for it with his own blood and justified us by his resurrection. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, Surely he, meaning Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep had gone astray. We all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our ultimate reconciliation, what Christmas points to, is that we are justified before and have access to the Father through Jesus. And this is only through Jesus. Jesus himself says in, verse four, in, in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, that's exactly how you came to the Father, through Jesus, by His grace and mercy alone. Regardless of background, regardless of pedigree, regardless of qualification, regardless of ceremony, performance, intellect, morality, good works, or anything else, you are and have been saved. You have and have been given access to the Father through Jesus Christ alone. And that's what makes the church, the people of God, an altogether new thing. In the past, before Jesus, any non-Jew, any non-ethnic Jew who wanted to worship the God of the Bible, who wanted to worship Yahweh, was still subject to restrictions and barriers and separation from ethnic Jews who worshiped the same God. Remember, they couldn't go to all parts of the temple. They were relegated to an outer section separated by a wall threatening their own death. 
But now in Christ, all of that separation is gone. It's torn down. It's abolished. It's done away with. God has brought all of his people near and through the blood of Christ to, uh, uh, alone. And Christ has given them all access to the Father through the same Spirit. This is marvel- marvelous, wonderful reconciliation that only God can bring about. And let's not overlook the beautiful work of the Trinity in this work of reconciliation either. Look in verse 18. We have the Son giving us access to the Father through one Spirit. John Stott says of this verse, he says, The highest and fullest achievement of our peacemaking, reconciling Christ, is the Trinitarian access of the people of God as through Him by one Spirit we come boldly to the Father. That's amazing. The entire Trinity has worked to reconcile us to God. This is why even when we feel overwhelmed in this Christmas season, when things don't slow down, when there's pain, when there's frustration, when there's hurt, when there's family drama, when there's illness and discord and there's lingering emotional wounds from past issues that have gone on and then seeing those people that that you went through that with just rips all that open and makes it all fresh again. When all of that's going on at Christmas, we can have peace in God. Christmas proclaims to us that Jesus is with us. He is our Emmanuel. He is our ever-present help in time of trouble. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and made a new people in himself who are reconciled to God and to each other. And he has given us this wonderful Trinitarian access to the Father in one spirit. What better news could there be? Christmas proclaims to us, as a friend of mine has said, that God is not too great to notice us. God is too great to overlook us. I wonder if you believe that this morning. I wonder if you see His majesty and His blessing and His power and His glory and, his, and the reconciliation that we desperately need, the only, that only He can bring in the message of Christmas. Will that make a difference in how you approach the celebration of Jesus' birth? and all that it means for us this year. God will not waste our pain. He will not leave us where He finds us. While our immediate circumstances may not change, because of Jesus, there is no more hostility. Because of Jesus, there is peace. Because of Jesus, we have access to the Father through one Spirit. So, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild for God and sinners are reconciled. Yes and amen. I'm going to invite the band up and invite the ushers forward and let's pray. And then we'll celebrate a baptism together and go nuts and celebrate for what the Lord has done. Father God, thank you for all that you have given us in Christ. Thank you for reconciling separated, broken, cut off, hopeless sinners such as us in the person work of Christ. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for tearing down hostility and giving us peace. May we feel that this season. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.